Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this tremendous privilege and this honor, this opportunity to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. What a privilege this is to do this very thing, to break bread, the very bread of life together. That is the word of God, to dine on it, in the presence of your spirit, in the power sphere, if you would, of the spirit. Father, what a privilege this is. Thank you for your grace, for your love, approving these things time and time again to us as we live this life you've given to us as well by grace. We do pray for those that can't be here with us this evening on this wonderful time or during this wonderful time of fellowship, Father. We pray that your spirit encourage them, for we know that they're out there and that they earnestly desire to be here with us and we just pray as well for our own perseverance, our own tenacity, our own energy to go and reach out to these individuals, encourage them for as long as it's called today as your scripture says. We also ask for blessings on our evangelical efforts outside of these four walls, Father, they are ongoing and the more you impress this great commission upon our hearts, the more we are inclined to go out and fulfill this very thing. But we know that it's by your grace alone that we are motivated to do it and by the love you've given us. We love because you first loved us. We are, of course, most grateful and thankful for your son's work on the cross to make even an evening like this one. May we never become familiar with it to make an evening like this one a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this evening's message title is Why the Apostles, or Why are the Apostles so encouraging? Uh, they were, by grace, they were prepared, part five. And I sort of forewarned you that... Uh, this evening's message, I have to do a lot of labor in pulling things together. If you've been following along for the last three weeks or so, uh, you know there's a lot, there was a lot of moving parts before uh, I left on vacation, but then with a mini-series and some other things that had sort of percolated up uh, at the end of uh, even my lessons a week and a half or so ago, um, there's just a lot of moving parts, so just keep your concentration on high. I know it's Thursday evening, um, and if you're new here, uh, just sort of get through it, you know, don't be discouraged by uh, anything that, you know, that doesn't make any sense right now. Uh, with that said, um, I read an interesting perspective that another pastor friend of mine posted on social media recently, and it has to do with the Lord's choice of under-shepherds, the Lord's choice of under-shepherds, and it resonates with our recent studies on King David given the fact that he was a shepherd, both in the literal and spiritual senses. And as we've been also learning what made David so great at bringing glory to God in time was his humility. That was, as Scott had stated several times, David's greatest asset. It was his humility. So I just thought I'd share this quote that my pastor friend shared recently from 
Mr. Charles Spurgeon. It goes like this, and this is Spurgeon writing. One brother I have encountered. One, did I say? I have met ten, twenty, a hundred brethren who have pleaded that they were quite sure that they were called to the ministry because they had failed in everything else. This is a sort of model story. Quote, Sir, I was put into a lawyer's office, but I never could bear the confinement, and I could not feel at home in studying law. Providence clearly stopped up my road, for I lost my situation. And what did you do then? Why, sir, I was induced to open a grocer's shop. And did you prosper? Well, I do not think, sir, I was ever meant for trade. And the Lord seemed quite to shut up my way there, for I failed and was in great difficulties. Since then, I have done a little in a life insurance agency and tried to get up a school besides selling tea. But my path is hedged up, and something within me makes me feel that I, that I ought to be a minister. My answer, says Spurgeon, generally is, yes, I see, you have failed in everything else, and therefore you think the Lord has especially endowed you for his service. But I fear you have forgotten that the ministry needs the very best of men, and not those who cannot do anything else. A man who would succeed as a preacher would probably do right well either as a grocer or a lawyer or anything else. A really valuable minister would have excelled in any occupation. There is scarcely anything impossible to a man who can keep a congregation together for years and be the means of edifying them for hundreds of consecutive Sabbaths. He must be possessed of some abilities and be by no means a fool or a never-do-well. And then he closes with this. Jesus Christ deserves the best men to preach his gospel and not the empty-headed and the shiftless. As the Spirit's been reminding us for the past week with the mini-series on perspective, it's a privilege to serve the Lord. Empty-headed and shiftless men are actually arrogant men. As a side note, I was thinking about why the Spirit had me come back this way. And it made me think about the theme of last year's men's conference up in New Hampshire, which was titled, Real Men Do, period. Real Men Do. And you know, that was King David's heart. He was a doer, not merely a hearer who deluded himself, to borrow from James 1.22. He was described in the Lord's own words as a man after my heart who will do all my will. Acts 13, 22. 
King David, the humble one, was a doer. So look at the point of the board again. Jesus Christ deserves the best men to preach his gospel and not the empty-headed and the shiftless. Do you remember what this man said to his son Solomon? I'll give it to you up here on the board. 1 Chronicles 28.10 Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you. And it doesn't matter what he chose for your vocation or your commission. It does not matter what the calling is. Humility says, I don't care. What do you have for me, Lord? I'm yours. You purchased me. I remember. That's a man of God. So consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. And what does he say? What does King David say to his son? Be courageous and sit around? No. Be courageous and act. That means move. That means do. Because you know what? That's what real men do. They do. They don't pontificate. They do. Because you know what? True humility understands it is a privilege to do. It's interesting because as I was writing that, I said to myself, I'm sure some of the arrogant people listening to this message have already stumbled several times. Why? Because their eyes have never left the man delivering the message, or better yet, themselves, to be totally blunt. But here's the fundamental point the Spirit's been making all week, and I'm just summarizing a piece of it. Real men and women, okay. I don't want women to be like, well, what about us? Real men and women do. If you don't believe that, read Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 when you go home. That's what a doer of a woman looks like. She's not idle. And you know what happens to idle women, right? They're gossiping women. I didn't say that. Real men and women do. Why? Not because there's anything extraordinary about them. Consider our series. Why are the apostles so encouraging? But rather because they are humble. They aren't interested in self-glorification, only God's glory by grace. That's all they're interested in. And so they do. What can I do to bring glory to God? Whatever you want, Lord. Do you remember Mary's Magnificat? Remember the humility we read? So, back to Spurgeon's little story. All he was saying is that a true shepherd, first, not second, not as a result of, first possesses the humility to do whatever the Lord asks him to do. That comes first. And that's what Spurgeon was getting at. These are hard issues. That comes first. They first possess the humility to do 
whatever the Lord asks him to do. If that means being a baker, then guess what? As unto the Lord, they will strive to bring glory to God in that vocation. Again, not for self-glorification, but to God's glory. That's the only way that true humility knows how to function. It's the only way that true humility knows how to function. What will you have of me, Lord? You have redeemed me. You have purchased my life. You are my perfect master. What shall I do for you? It doesn't matter after that, does it? Should it matter? It's the only thing. Paul wrote of this very thing up here on the board. Ephesians 6, 7. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. Who are we serving, in other words? We're serving the Lord always. How'd you get the intellect? Some of you are happy with your job, some not. But, and some of you just happy with your life, whatever that means right now. But who gave you the air you're breathing? Who gave you the health to walk through that door when others can't? Who gave you the brain to give you that nice job you might have? Who gave you all those things? The Lord did. To bring glory to yourself or to bring glory to Him? Uh, what does Scripture say? Don't take Pastor Ed's word for it. I want you to have your own conviction. Ephesians 6, 7. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. So that's all Spurgeon was bringing to light. Humility manifest in men whom the Lord God has chosen to preach. While a humble person gets that, an arrogant one always stumbles. They're always looking at me or the next guy standing behind the pulpit. Who knows why? I know why, but <clears throat> that's between them and the Lord. So while a humble person gets it, the arrogant one always stumbles. Why? Easy. It's something we studied out in greater detail not too long ago. I'll give you the scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.16 Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. In other words, we're not supposed to look through the fleshly lens at any of this, at the grace of God, at the plan of God. We're not supposed to look through that lens. If we look through that lens, the whole thing's perverted. We have to learn to see others through the lens of Christ Himself. That's why you're here. The Word became flesh, right? John 1.14, this is the Word of God. You want to know Him? You want to have the mind of Christ? Then you've got to know this. And He didn't pick a bunch of failures in the world to stand behind pulpits. He didn't say, well, as a last resort, I guess you should become part of the cloth. We have to learn to see others through the lens of Christ Himself. We have to learn to toss out our own prejudices. For they are the result of our own experiences, not others. 
We have to learn to love others and encourage them for as long as it's called today. Hebrews 3.13 For as long as it's still called today. One of my greatest fears for this congregation and this is something that I had to ponder on my own vacation. Don't, don't you worry, there's no getting out. There's no real getting away. Just a lessening of the labor. My heart doesn't just go on vacation. One of my greatest fears for this congregation is that you have become familiar with the grace that flows from this ministry. It's definitely at the very high end of my list of fears, if you want. Things that, quote, keep me up at night. That you've become familiar with this ministry. And yes, it begins with the man, this man, that has been anointed by God to lead you. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that every one of you has become familiar with me personally. No doubt in my mind. Not a single doubt in my mind. And I'm purposely looking at all of you in the eye. Because I want you to know that's exactly how I feel. That's exactly what I discern. And yet here I am. Here I am. Faithfully. Why? Read the end of John 2 when you get home and see what Jesus thought about the heart of man. My expectations, are you ready for this, are a little lower than this. My expectations are all with God. Thank God for that. But I know what Scripture says. Scripture says if you become familiar with this ministry, it's to your detriment, not mine. I don't depend on you for my self-esteem. Only an arrogant person would think that way. I care about you. I love you in ways you don't even know. So here I stand, saying the same thing over and over again. Don't become familiar. Don't become familiar. Familiarity breeds contempt. It breeds lots of ungodly things. So it does begin with a man, and I'm not shocked at the things he shows me. As I said to someone recently, it is what it is. It just is. As Deacon Johnson has said many times, and you hear him giggling back there, but even him, and no offense, I love him dearly, but even all of us. I'm just looking at myself in the mirror when I say these things. We don't encourage each other enough anymore. We've all become familiar with everything, with this whole place. Do you like the heat? Do you like the fact that the, the driveway's plowed? Do you like the fact that you have such a handsome pastor? <laughs> I'm being a wise guy. But this is what, and I could bring him up here, and if I'm wrong, Deacon Johnson, what would you say? I don't know, I thought you said amen. Can you say amen? All right. 
This is what he said to me many, many times. Because he's one of the first people I go to. He's one of my confidants, if you would, that I go to and say, what's going on? He said, Pastor, the more faithful you are, the more familiar this congregation will become. And he's absolutely correct. Not because I have such a high esteem of that man, but I have a much higher esteem of Holy Scripture, which 2 Corinthians 12, 15 says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? And you know that Paul was a bit of a wisecracker. You know that that was a rhetorical question, right? The answer is obviously yes. If you're a parent, you know that this exists. The more you love your kids, the less they seem to love you. It's ridiculous. That was Paul speaking, of course, and the question is rhetorical. The answer is yes. But here's what I've learned. Lest I be riddled and sleepless with visions of utter failure, curing familiarity's plague. A shepherd cannot cure a familiarity. This I have learned. I'd like to be able to, but I can't. I just can't. For it is his person who others have become dull of hearing with. So it's like the catch-22. The guy who's trying to cure it, nobody hears. He can at best help sharpen another's perspective. The best I can do is bring up Scripture, lead you to water, but I can't make you drink. I can tell you things like if you become familiar with me or the ministry or those around you that serve you so diligently, so faithfully, it's to your detriment, but it's like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. Only God can cure this plague. So I give it over to him. That's my rest. And I'm glad I have it. And I'm very grateful for it. One of my best friends in the ministries over the years has been uh, Pastor John Farley. And in many ways, this man mentored me early on in my pastoral career. And for that, I'm forever grateful. But now he's sick with a serious illness. And all I can think about is what God's going to instill in the hearts of the sheep in his congregation. Another faithful man doing everything he thinks is right for another group down in Florida. And all I can think about is what's God's gonna, what is God going to do in them? With their familiarity, will it be shaken up? If I were to fall ill tomorrow, would yours? It's a serious question you all need to ask yourselves. And it has absolutely everything to do with this past week's lessons. So this isn't Pastor coming back and waxing about his office or trying to what, boost my reputation in this world or in this local assembly? Not at all. I'm far too humble for that kind of garbage. And I know what Scripture says, and I have faith in it up here on the board. Luke 17.10, So you too 
when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. That's scripture. We're not supposed to boast about being this or that in the ministry. We're not even supposed to look at others or know others by the flesh, through the lens of the flesh. We're servants. And with a little perspective, um, we figure out, as we learned this last week, that it's a privilege to serve. Up here on the board. There's nothing we can do here on earth that removes us from our position as servants. There's no promotion that we ought to be striving for that will effectively elevate us above our peers. This is why the following principle from Tuesday's lesson was so beautiful. Serving from the heart. The proper perspective on serving is that it's a pure privilege. It is. It's nothing less than a privilege, a grace gift, and an opportunity to honor the Lord from the heart. That's what it means to serve. So concentrate for a moment. I know you've already got a lot on your plate, but I need you to concentrate because these are the things, these are the, the collective thoughts that I get placed on my heart. And it's only a portion of them. And he says, share them with the congregation because they're becoming familiar again. They're doing that thing again. Concentrate. Too many people, through their own fleshly lens, ask the wrong questions. Asking things like, am I really able to do this? A servant's heart isn't like that. Like King David and Charles Spurgeon, a servant just does. They just do. Up here on the board. A servant's heart asks not what. That's the arrogant person. That's the arrogant person. Well, what is it? It's a test I give potential leaders. It doesn't matter what it is. Will you do it? An arrogant person says, well, what is it? It depends. No, it doesn't depend. A servant's heart asks not what, but rather when, how, and where. How can I help? How can I serve? I believe it's a privilege to serve. That's the servant's heart. So it's not about what, it's when, where, how. <laughs> you want me to run up to hell? Hoorah, Mike. You want me to run up to hell? I'll run up to hell. Where's my rifle? Okay, I got a stick. Okay, I'll just beat somebody with a stick. Let's go. David had a what? A slingshot. Did it matter? Nine foot tall. Little David. What, what do you need? He said, how dare you taunt the living God? You're going down, big fella. And down he went. He walked right by all the never-will-do's, or however Spurgeon said it. 
all the, you know, these people who use big words like servants and servant's heart. And he, she just, well, he just has such a wonderful heart. Really, why didn't they ever do anything? As I've taught you for years now, so much of your deliverance, you ready? So much of your deliverance, not mine, so much of yours depends upon the one thing that you are able to affect as change, and that is simply in humility getting out of your own way. Just get out of your own way. Stop living for yourself. Stop coming to church. Stop looking at me as if it's mandatory that I'm here. God could take me away. To my, didn't you learn that with uh, Jonah? Remember the tree? <laughs> oh, I love the shade. <laughs> What'd you do? I might as well die. Stop doing that thing. Stop being familiar. Some of you are so familiar, you're like, oh. yeah, I can't make it tonight. Because you know why? It'll always be there. That new website, oh, that's great, but I don't have the time to actually send pastor any encouragement whatsoever. I really like it, though. <clears throat> what makes you think that's mandatory? What makes you think that someone who was a complete failure out in the world is now your pastor, chosen and anointed by God to lead you? What makes you think that's that guy? What makes you think any of that's true? What gives you the right to become entitled to any of this grace? You are not entitled to anything. Last time I checked, you are what you are by the grace of God. And God can giveth, and God can taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So says Job, the blameless and upright one. Those aren't punchlines at parties. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Cheers. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. What do you mean I lost my Lexus? This is bull. I'm not, this is bull. This don't work. What do you mean I didn't get that promotion? What do you mean the, I don't get that date with that hot guy? What do you mean I don't get this thing? I don't get that thing. What do you mean pastor's not there? What's he doing? Anyways, what's he doing? I think I, you know what? I think I saw him at Best Buy. We ought to keep an eye on the accounts. I saw him buy a new TiVo, and it wasn't cheap. It was the one with 68,000 gigabytes of storage. Don't exist. You have no idea what I've been doing. Most of it was laboring for you. But that's just you not getting out of the way. That's just you becoming familiar. So once you get out of the way, you will understand the following from this past week's lesson as well. <clears throat> Recognizing privilege when you see it. With the Lord's perspective, you will see how much you've been blessed. While you get familiar, Christ never does. Hebrews 13.8 If you've lost sight of your privilege to serve, you've lost sight of Christ. That's a fact. 
If you've lost sight of your privilege to serve, you've lost sight of Christ. It really means, in short order, that your eyes have been deflected from eyes on Christ to eyes on self or others or whatever your idol of the week is. So while you get familiar with Christ, oh, he's always there. Doesn't the scripture say he's the same yesterday, today, and forever? Yeah, that's her, Hebrews 13, 8. So he's always there? Yeah, you mean he's like my, 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 my faithful parents, the ones that seem to always be there, that I treat like crap? They're always, you know, he's like that even better? Like he never leaves? Yeah, oh, I can totally get familiar with him then. I can just take him, put him up on a shelf, and say, la, 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 la. You still there? <laughs> this is awesome. He never leaves me. Doesn't the scripture say he'll never leave me or forsake me? Why don't I abuse more of his grace in my self-centeredness? I know, huh? Welcome back, Pastor. I ain't all nice like Scotty. Welcome back. Christ doesn't get familiar, nor should you. There you go. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Well, what's your problem? Where are you? Scripture says, while he's faithful, you're faithless because he can't deny himself. Sound familiar? Here's yet another perspective we're sharing from this past week's lessons remembering where you came from, if you remember that you didn't have the privilege to serve the Lord until He chose to save you, maybe, just maybe, you'll be more grateful for your current opportunity to do so. Let me say that one again. Remembering where you came from. If you remember that you didn't have the privilege to serve the Lord until He chose to save you, Maybe, just maybe, you'll be more grateful for your current opportunity to do so. The key, as I've taught you many times in the past, is understanding the big picture. That God's grace is not designed to accommodate man. It is designed to accommodate God, to bring glory to Him. So please always remember this, especially as we continue with our studies concerning the apostles. We are what we are to God's glory. First Chronicles 17, 19. <clears throat> I think we saw this this past week. O Lord, for your servant's sake and according to your own heart, you have wrought all this greatness to make known all these great things. 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. <laughs> the apostles knew that. And that's part of the encouragement of our lessons. Is that these unexceptional men, though they stumbled, knew that they were what they were by the grace of God. We must always remember to keep our perspective as the Apostle Paul wrote. Go to Philippians 4.8. Philippians 
Ah, it's good to be back. Hey, maybe if you didn't get familiar, I wouldn't have to teach these lessons. Just saying. Remember, I'm just doing whatever he wants me to do. If things were different, it'd be a different message. Just saying. It'd be nice, people. <laughs> DJ's having a fit. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Put away your Xbox, put away your Bud Light or whatever, your Guinness or whatever your whatever's in your flute or your grunt. What do you call those things? What do you call those things there? Growl. Okay, who said it? Monica Rowe. All right. Your growler. Any questions on beer? See, Monica. I thought it was Joey. Put away, dwell on these things. Honorable, good, truth. Dwell on these things. Grace, love, anything of excellence. Verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, says Paul, the apostle. What does it say? Practice these things. Oh, you mean there's actually doing? Yeah. There's actually doing involved. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things means being a doer. Servants do, as unto the Lord, whatever their hand finds to do. Up here in the board. Servanthood defines our lot. I mean, this is one of the major themes from this past week. We are slaves for obedience, Romans 6, 16, 18. Our perspective needs to be, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you, 1 Chronicles 29, 14. That we should even be able, that you should even be able to say, Serve behind the pulpit, or clean the toilets, or cook some food, or drive in the parking lot, or admire the big sign out front in the church, the beauty of the church, any of these things, that you should be able to behold the beauty of God's creation. Who are we? Who are we? Let me elaborate on that for a bit, <clears throat> that we should be able, by grace alone, we have been given the ability to offer ourselves, our whole selves, to God as a living, holy sacrifice, Romans 12, 1. The ability becomes the blessing. Do you hear that? You ready? The ability to offer yourself up as a living and holy sacrifice. That's the blessing. The ability to do it. And who am I? Who are you? Who are we? Did we have these abilities, these incredible abilities? Who are we to even have God's love imparted to us? You, seriously? God of the universe says, I'm going to give you my love? 
Are you serious? We get to love because he first loved us? This is what this is all about? You know, what, what are we doing then? What are we striving for? More stuff? More reputation? More dates? What are we, what are we looking for? Seriously, what are we doing? In this world, who are we living for? If not for Christ. That's between you and the Lord. I mean, I have my ideas. The ability becomes the blessing, not the crowns or the rewards awarding for doing so. You know, David was given a crown. And he said, who am I? That's the man after God's own heart. We just read that. It's a good question to ask ourselves when we get familiar. Who am I? Seriously, who are you to be sitting in that seat right now? Is that seat pretty comfortable? Kind of, right? Some of you are, no, it's just not. You know, it was one time when I was a little thinner, it was a lot more comfortable, but they need to up these chairs because these chairs are getting rickety. Seriously? Who are you? There's some person who probably died today for proclaiming belief in Christ Jesus. Did you get shot at today? I don't think so. I don't think so. You're sitting in a nicely air-conditioned room. Who are you? We get familiar. As the Spirit's been teaching us over and over, we are servants of the perfect master. Go to Romans 6.16. Romans 6.16. Romans 6.16. We cannot lose that perspective that we are servants. And that's as good as it's going to get. And that's a blessing to know that thing. It's a blessing. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves, slaves of righteousness. You are always a slave. There's no, oh, captain, captain, my captain, I'm the captain of my own ship. That's garbage from some moron poet that feeds the arrogant flesh. You're always a slave, and that's not a bad thing. Satan's really smart. He turned it into something ridiculous and something evil and something negative, but it's really not. It's a privilege. There's a blessing in serving the Lord. What, what do you do when you have a purpose? I mean, let me ask you a, better, a more basic question. I don't want to digress too far, but what's life without purpose? Can you say depressing? Okay, if you want a purpose, everybody wants purpose here, right? That's what gets you up in the morning. Okay, you guess what? You ready? You're a slave to that purpose. 
Once you have your true north, which is Christ for us, you now have purpose in life. And you serve that end. Is that fair? That's a slave. You can call it whatever you want, but that's a slave. And when that end goal, when that purpose is Christ himself, and sharing his mind and his gospel with the rest of the world, then you're a slave. And that's a wonderful, beautiful, magnificent blessing and a privilege to serve. One last thought I had while listening to this past week's lessons was a little, let's call it a litmus test that we can all take. And it is a good segue back to our primary series titled, Why Are the Apostles So Encouraging? By Grace They Were Saved, or uh, Prepared, excuse me. One of the things we see in the apostles' lives is testing. It's one thing to understand, you know, the doctrines in the Word of God. You have Scripture. You might be able to recite it. You have a little bit of knowledge. But as Solomon would say, knowledge puffs up, makes someone haughty. It's wisdom or after. One of the things we see in the apostles' lives is testing. So it's great that you have all these things, but it means nothing until your faith is actually tested. There's a lot of blowhards in this world, in other words. Some of them are in churches even. As we see with the apostles, even so far in our lessons, Jesus was constantly teaching them, we know this, but he was also constantly pushing them out so that they could see firsthand the fruit of their own faith or lack of. He was constantly pushing them out, saying, okay, you know, like, a, you know, like when a baby first learns how to walk, they're like, and then they turn right around and come right back to mom. That kind of thing. It's like what we do, right? Jesus pushed them out, and they're like, oh. And they couldn't do anything because their faith was terrible. But he would bring them back. He'd teach them a lesson. We call that on-the-job training, OJT. He'd bring them back in, sort of coddle them a little bit and say this, this, this. Sometimes he was, you know, we don't know all the things that happened, but we know he's a perfect teacher, and we know that he sent them out and they came back. He sent them out and he came back, and then he left. So Jesus was constantly teaching them, pushing them out so that they could see firsthand the fruit of their own faith or lack of. And the same goes for all of us. While under the doctrine of eternal security, we know that God will never test us beyond what our saving faith can endure. But we also do know that he will certainly test us beyond our own progressive sanctification. As we mature, we can handle more. But we don't always pass the test first time around. Does anybody want to be that arrogant? I don't think. Usually it's on the order of like 100 tests. It's like, oh, finally I got it. This is grace in the sense that something good comes out of it. Even if you fail, this is a perspective that I've taught you in the past. Even if you fail, what did Job do at the end? In, uh, I think it's chapter 42 of Job. What did he do? He sat in dust and ashes and repented. And he said, now I see you're the man. <laughs> After he, God said, gird up your loins. This is going to be a little fun. Do you remember that? 
and he repented in dust and ashes, I think is what the New American says. That was a good thing. That was a wonderful lesson. It's the same kind of lesson we see with Jonah and elsewhere, etc., etc. Paul, three times, take this thorn out of my side. And he went, and God's like, ho-hum. And then he said, oh, now I remember. His grace is sufficient for me. Jesus told me that, and he was good. <laughs> so there's good that comes out of testing faith. It's actually necessary. And we see that with the apostles. So here's our last point of review from this past week's mini-series, the value of pressure. Pressure proves the metal of a person's heart. Under pressure, true faith emits humility. You want to know, truth be told, whether you're a humble person or an arrogant person? Oh, you can, look, you can send me and everybody else in here all these wonderfully thought out and well-articulated emails and texts and say all the right things, how humble you are, and say it with the right intonation so that your voice sounds so cute and dimpled. Oh. And you're so humble. You know, you draw in the sand, you know. You can do all of that stuff. But until your faith is put to the test, you're not going to know. What are you asking me? Wait a minute. What was it? Or when, where, how? Tell me when to show up. Whatever you want. That's how you know. When your faith is put to the test, when God asks you to do something for Him, how do you respond under that kind of pressure? But my life, my life, how can I actually fit this into my schedule? Hold on a second. <laughs> Hold on a second, God. It's my day planner. It's all color-coded, though. You're so proud of me, right? Okay, I can fit you in. Next, 2018, March 13th. <sighs> You serious? You're not humble, you're arrogant. That's not humility at all. It's the first time I put you to the, your faith to the test. You, you, you compared me with your life, which I gave you, by the way. That's, that's not humility at all. That's arrogance. That's, that's, that's you challenging me, challenging my authority. Who's the, who's the authority in the master-slave relationship? Last time I checked, it's the master. Who are we to say? Who's the clay to say to the potter? Why did you make me this way? I'm weak. I can't do it. I can't do it. Shut up. Yes, you can. That's your flesh. Yes, you can. It's funny because the more I learn about Paul and the apostles, especially Paul. Paul was an interesting character. He kind of liked pressure. Like he liked it. He, he often referred to it. He says, you know, not only do I have all this, but I have the pressure of all the churches on me too. And it fueled him. Why? You know why? Because he considered a privilege to serve the Lord. He knew that by grace, the Lord would deliver him out of any possible situation that the Lord put him in. He didn't walk around saying, you want me to do what? You want me to walk on foot how many miles? 
and then back and forth how many times? And some of you are like, I'm not going to church. My air condition's broken in the car. I got to drive this one, and he keeps passing gas. I'm just not doing it. I just I can't, I, can't, I can't live with this way. I can't live with it. I spilled a latte macchiato frappuccino on my carpet. It's not dry. It's not dry. I'll be tracking it everywhere on my new Gucci shoes. You know, I'll probably touch a shoe, touch my brand new pearl necklace. Do you know what I'm saying? Probably brush by my diamond earrings, and, and my colored hair will get stained, and i got to go back to the hairdresser and spend $300 on a new haircut. You know how it goes, right? Right, God? You understand? It's like, what? Are you, what? Seriously, what? I'll go get somebody else. And that's exactly what he does. That's exactly what he does. He says, I'll go get somebody else to do it then. You obviously have a little bit more to go. So the point is, and I've got to close here, <laughs> pressure proves these things to you. Don't, I don't, I, look, last week's lessons were great, right? But that's not the rubber hit the road. The rubber hit the road is this. It's wonderful to know, oh, it's a privilege to serve. Awesome. How about the next time God says, I need you to serve me right now? No questions asked. Stop asking. Don't even go there. Right now, what are you going to do? What's your response? Is it humble or is it arrogant? Do you respond or do you react? Do you say, whatever you want, Lord, like Mary did? Or do you run away towards your little life? And then tell everybody the Spirit told me to do it. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. You're a jackass. You're an arrogant person. You're familiar. You're pathetic. You're weak. That's me looking in the mirror sometimes. So don't get all huffy. Do you know how hard it is to get macchiato out of a carpet? <laughs> I'm serious. One of the things we love about the apostles, why are we encouraged by him? Why are we encouraged by him? Do you remember what, do you remember what um, I want to say it was Peter and um, probably John and James or whoever? He said, man, we just got whipped. That was awesome. We got to do this for the Lord. We just got our butts handed to us. Unfairly. This was a blessing. Do you remember that? It's incredible. This, that's encouraging. The apostles, they thrived under that pressure. Not because they were extraordinary. Because they were humble. They, they thrived in that environment. That's how you know. And I'm not, I'm, listen, listen, I don't want to leave you with condemnation like, oh man, I never, I'm, I'm never going to be like that. You're missing the point. There are examples, there are encouragement. You may not be there yet, but that's where you're supposed to be going. That's where you're supposed to be going. If you don't have humility, he'll teach you humility. Just keep showing up. And please, from, from my benefit, for your benefit, Stop being so stinking familiar. I'm serious. Spend that, spend that little extra time saying thank you once in a while to yours truly, to everybody else in here. Spend that little, I know, I know they took extra long at Starbucks with the macchiato, latte, frappuccino. I know, I, oh, I'm, I'm so sympathetic, really. I don't know how you live. 
But, you know, after that, after that, after that torturous existence that you lived in your air-conditioned car, after that, I mean, think about others. Think about others. I mean, isn't that what Jesus wanted? Life is pressure, is it not? Most of you are going to walk out of here and be like, man, that was, that was something. And life's going to pounce on you. Life's unrelenting. It's going to pounce on you. The, the, the God of this world doesn't want you to remember this lesson. He wants to distract you as soon as you get out the door. Most of you are going to go like this. Wow. Ooh. Oh, look at that. I got three texts from Oily Bohunk and uh, Frappuccino Queen and uh, Little Miss Muffin. Look at that. And they all have ties. They're like this. Come back. It's unrelenting. That's pressure. That's life. You either thrive in it or you don't. You either have a servant's heart or you don't. So let me finish with this. The value of pressure, pressure proves the metal of a person's heart. Under pressure, true faith emits humility. Pseudo-faith emits arrogance. God reminds us of our arrogance by pressing us to this latter point and then saying, see, you're still arrogant. I did it tonight for you as a favor to you. I was his instrument tonight to show you in your own little way. And I wasn't talking about anyone in particular. Some of you are already like, he's talking about me. I think I'm going to write him an, I think I'm going to write him an email. <laughs> I think, I think, I, you know what? I never did it before, but I'm going to do it tonight. And I was nice to him because he was on vacation and I, was, I respected it, but no more. It'll be venom all over the keyboard. and It'll be melting because it's venom. <laughs> That's all he's doing. I'm an instrument of righteousness. Do you understand? I'm not perfect, but I'm humble. I'm doing my job. I'm not some loser. I don't mean to say it in the wrong way. I'm not some, some, some moron that just flunked out of every walk of life and then said, I, I guess I'll just go and be in the ministry. He doesn't call those guys. He doesn't call those people. He calls people to say, what do you want from me? That's who he calls. End of story. When do I show up? That's what he wants out of you. You're supposed to imitate my faith, right? Well, here I am, being yet again an instrument of righteousness. So please, learn this lesson Think about it over the weekend. You've got a couple of days now before Sunday. And um, seriously, I say this with every fiber of my being. Stop being so um, familiar. I'm serious. Stop being familiar. I'm not saying it for my sake. I'm saying it for all of yours. Stop being so familiar. Amen? All right, let's bow Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege to study a word here this evening. Thank you for the the easy lessons, but also the difficult lessons. Thank you for being real with us always and for setting us straight, for orienting us to grace and true love. This is what we want. This is what we're after, Father. We're so grateful for it. We do ask for traveling mercies as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, out beyond these four walls. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.
Thank you.